This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Resisting the woke ideologies that threaten our church and our culture. Those who try to thrust modernist philosophies, often called woke, present their ideas as inevitable. They proclaim, We are on the right side of history. All too often, more traditional Americans who fear confrontation yield to the progressive shrill demands. This is unfortunate because most of the leftists' favorite ideas are logically weak. When the courageous citizens arm themselves with facts, the woke ideology can be defeated. Today's episode of the Return to Order Moment is devoted to sharing those facts and how they can be used. One of the bolder proposals promoting the woke worldview is the New York Times' 1619 Project. It tries to replace the time-honored version of American history with one of systemic racism and oppression. However, genuine scholars of American history point out the grave errors that abound within the 1619 Project. Edwin Benson describes the work of one such scholar, Dr. Peter Wood, in his essay, A Fearsome Tool for Those Fighting the 1619 Project. If future American historians look for a perfect symbol of the academic madness of present times, they may point to the 1619 Project. It springs from an educational establishment that has abandoned truth and objectivity. Mainstream media and its culture have embraced the project's art of propaganda. Some liberal state departments of education, local school boards, and classroom teachers adopted it before the ink on its pages was dry. The 1619 Project is a compendium of leftist attitudes about the United States. If those same future historians would want to document that the entire academic world, circa 2020, did not lose its head, they can start with 1620, a critical response to the 1619 Project by Peter W. Wood. By that time in the future, the historians will know which point of view prevailed. If hope and not hate won the day, it will be because of denunciations like Dr. Wood's fine book. 1620 accomplishes one essential task. It examines the 1619 Project and separates its lies and half-truths from its pseudo-academic veneer. Peter W. Wood is the president of the National Association of Scholars. Founded in 1987, NAS promotes the idea that higher education is still a search for objective truth. In 1996, they published The Disillusion of General Education, 1914-1993, which documented the decline of the American university. In 2013, NAH published Dr. Wood's Recasting History. Are race, class, and gender dominating American history? The NAS also champions the Western Civilization courses that virtually all universities required until the late 70s, and are so vilified by leftist academics today. The difference between the NAH's earlier works and 1620 
is that this new book, while maintaining high academic standards, is written for a wider audience. It explains the problems of 1619, but does not lapse into the academic jargon that many readers find perplexing. The following example is an illustration. Quote, If the 1619 project were a term paper, any knowledgeable, fair-minded teacher would give it an F and be done with it. It demonstrates not only incompetence in handling basic facts, but also a total disregard for the importance of using reliable sources. The author of the term paper displays wild overconfidence in her opinions and rushes past points that she should have and easily could have checked. Unquote. Dr. Wood laments that the 1619 Project is not an incompetent term paper, but a major statement of the prestigious New York Times. From this platform, the program is doing incalculable damage to the teaching of U.S. history in our nation's schools. Among the author's many points about the 1619 Project are five major errors. First, 1619 removes American slavery from any context. It never acknowledges that slavery existed and continues to exist in other cultures, places, and eras. For instance, it never mentions that slavery existed in the Americas long before any Europeans arrived. It does not point out that most Africans were initially enslaved by other Africans and then sold to European slave traders. Second, it promotes understandings of slavery in America that are factually false. For example, Project author Nicole Hannah-Jones writes of the first Africans sold in Jamestown in 1619, quote, They were among the 12.5 million who would be kidnapped from their homes and brought in chains across the Atlantic Ocean, unquote. Such a statement might lead students to think that all 12.5 million slaves came to the U.S. That is false. Dr. Wood accepts the 12.5 million number as a total, but points out that only 388,000 came to North America. That is only slightly more than 3% of the total. A far larger number went to the sugar colonies of the Caribbean. Third, Nicole Hannah-Jones would have students believe that enslaving Africans was eagerly and enthusiastically accepted by the earliest Jamestown settlers. Dr. Wood points out that slavery came as something of a surprise, as witnessed by the fact that no legal status for slaves existed in Virginia in 1619. These early Africans were treated as quote-unquote indentured servants, for which there was a pre-existing legal structure. African slavery in Virginia took almost a century to become the institution that most modern students would recognize. Fourth, the 1619 Project resists the fact that much heavy lifting in the process of abolishing slavery was done by white men. The politics of abolition and the white politicians who debated it go unmentioned. In Nicole Hannah-Jones's fantasy world, the abolition of slavery was accomplished by the enslaved themselves and only by the enslaved. Fifth, the motivation behind 1619 
is that the history of American slavery has been underplayed or ignored. Dr. Wood spends a fair amount of time showing that this contention was, perhaps, accurate until the 1950s. However, the history of slavery has been intensely studied and taught in the last seven decades. No American history textbook in common use in 2020 can be justly accused of ignoring slavery. These are just a few of the inconsistencies, misleading assumptions, and falsehoods presented by the 1619 Project. Dr. Wood's fine book offers more than enough evidence to back up his conclusion that, quote, the 1619 Project as a whole is myth-making, aimed at intensifying identity politics and group grievance. It doesn't aim, as it says, to tell our story truthfully. It aims to tell it with falsehoods and deceptions for the purpose of instilling resentment, unquote. Unfortunately, These falsehoods and deceptions are making their way into the curricula of far too many schools. They form the undercurrent of animosity and resentment found in many American history classrooms. Nicole Hannah-Jones and 1619 are not the problem. The New York Times is not the problem. The problem is that too many American progressives see history classrooms as incubators of quote-unquote social justice. Teachers, buttressed by 1619 and texts such as A People's History of the United States, present a persuasive version of critical race theory to children unequipped to refute it. Left-leaning instructors use their students to quote-unquote signal their virtue as quote-unquote allies of Black Lives Matter and other such movements. Unfortunately, Most parents who find themselves in verbal battles with teachers, administrators, and school boards are not prepared. They, unlike their adversaries, haven't studied history in decades. They have not participated in quote-unquote professional development sessions in which the ironically racist ideas of Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist are promoted. In this context, 1620, a critical response to the 1619 Project, is a vital resource. It supplies much-needed ammunition for those ideological battles. With it, parents and other concerned Americans can poke holes in 1619 and critical race theory. Everyone needs to engage in this battle as if America's children's futures depend on it. Because they do. The 1619 Project is only one of a series of ideas that concerned parents should resist. Another is something called whole child education. Proponents of this theory argue that the schools should focus on the emotional state of children, often to the exclusion of the material that society expects the schools to teach. The mundane facts of science, history, and mathematics are ignored in favor of social development. Mr. Benson exposes this educational malpractice in his essay, Are Parents Losing Their Children to the Whole Child Deception? The world of education is replete with buzzwords, those terms or pithy phrases that sound optimistic but often mask a dark reality. One of them is whole child, and another is the more technical-sounding social-emotional learning. 
Both terms mean the same thing. Whole child programs promote children's mental health. The programs share two common factors. First, schools administer them. Second, they are designed to deceive. Some quote-unquote experts argue that public schools are the logical places to teach whole child programs since the infrastructure, buildings, transportation, human resources, and funding are already in place. Most American parents are already used to sending their children to spend seven hours a day, 180 days a year, for 13 or more years to a public school. Schools also serve to form the character and outlook of students. The basic theory behind modern education affirms that there are four functions of schools, intellectual, civic, economic, and social. Indeed, most schools are intellectual places where students pick up knowledge and skills. They also serve a civic function by teaching children how to be good citizens. Schools teach useful skills that add to the productivity and economic welfare of the nation. Public schools long focused on these three functions. Under the leadership of John Dewey, 1859-1952, and his modern-day disciples, the emphasis gradually shifted to the social element. Since Dr. Dewey was a utilitarian materialist with strong leanings towards socialism, progressive education emphasized this point of view. Thus, education shifted away from the notion that education should give children the tools to find their place in society, aided by the accumulated wisdom of the ages. Progressives have increasingly used schools as a vehicle to turn society in their preferred direction. The projects of these social engineers have wrecked great havoc on society. The current whole child philosophy is a favorite tool to push the progressive agenda. Teachers can broach any topic under the argument that the schools must address not only facts, but the needs of the whole child. School officials can then decide the nature of those needs. An example of the philosophy's harmful effects is illustrated by a recent incident in Williamson County, Tennessee. As in many schools, officials there are pushing students to accept the homosexual and transgender ideology that is so contrary to God's law. At Hillsborough Elementary School, teachers presented a short one-and-a-half-minute video to 7th grade students promoting gender ideology. Such short videos are often used as conversation starters. They are presented as springboards to free inquiry, but usually end up as straitjackets to keep everyone in line. This short video features a single speaker standing against a blank background. The speaker appears to be a middle school student. The young person could be described as androgynous. The clothing is masculine, while the haircut could fit either a boy or a girl. The voice is feminine, but it could also be the voice of a boy who has not yet reached puberty. The presentation is about the plight of the quote-unquote non-binary student who grapples with issues of quote-unquote sexual identity. 
The first line of the film is bizarre and unusual. Quote, if you feel like a bowl of mashed potatoes floating through space, that is okay. Unquote. After saying that such feelings are understandable, the speaker then says, you are perfect the way you are. Unquote. The title of the video, Self-Care Middle School, then flashes on the screen. The speaker relates her struggle with the question, Am I really a girl? She tells how she overcame her anxieties. Any mature person watching this video can easily conclude that this girl needs help. Her situation is indeed a severe one. However, the overall presentation is not that this person is in peril, but that she is a kind of oracle dispensing the wisdom gained from her experience. The young woman's tone of voice is resolute, as though she has determined this aspect of her life and it is time for her to face other challenges. Showing this video was not the act of some rogue teachers, but something supported by the school administration. According to a Tennessee Star report, the principal did issue an apology but not for showing the video, only for not notifying the parents first. His page on the school website echoes support for the whole child viewpoint. Quote, We focus on the whole child and the social-emotional needs of our community. It is our goal that students become productive and responsible citizens, contributing in a positive way to their world. Unquote. Whole Child also reflects the philosophy of Tennessee Education Commissioner Penny Schwinn. The educational publication Chalkbeat Tennessee totally supports the commissioner's efforts. Quote, Schwinn had identified support for students' mental health needs as the top concern that she heard from educators during her statewide listening tour after becoming Tennessee's education chief in February. Unquote. Her Best for All plan points out that, quote, Tennessee public schools will be equipped to serve the academic and non-academic needs of all students, unquote. Unfortunately, those non-academic needs are filtered through the homosexual and transsexual ideologies' distorted lens. There is no epidemic of such children. Those who are so afflicted need intense one-on-one -on -one help. They need to bring their self-awareness into line with the unchangeable truth of being either male or female. The classroom is not a therapeutic community. Videos like the one present at Hillsborough Elementary School do not help confuse students, but merely spread the confusion. They raise questions in the minds of students who never even thought about such things. Adolescence is naturally a time of great uncertainty. Children at this age begin to discern the outlines of their adult lives. The natural challenges of adolescence can be overwhelming to many such young people. The last thing they need is to confront issues in a way that denies reality. While denying basic and obvious realities, academia is busy trying to create new ones. In today's environment, many professors specialize in creating new and previously unknown forms of racism. They charge anyone who holds traditional values with systemic racism. 
Mr. Benson analyzes one such eruption in his essay, The Madness of Woke Ideology Now Denounces Linguistic Racism. One sign of modern society's frenetic intemperance is its eagerness to turn perfectly innocent, even necessary, actions into grievances. The tactic keeps the ground constantly shifting. Eventually, the acceptable action becomes anathema. For example, the United States has long helped immigrants integrate into American society by teaching them English. Learning new languages is not without its difficulties. However, these integrating efforts immensely helped immigrants and their families enjoy academic, economic, and social success beyond their wildest dreams. Such success is not appealing to the leftist mentality because it looks for occasions of strife and discord. Overcoming the difficulties of learning English is now surfacing as an example of linguistic racism. The chief promoter of this twisted concept is Professor Peter DaCosta of Michigan State University. In the publication MSU Today, he provided a vague definition, quote, Acts of racism perpetuated against individuals on the basis of their language use, unquote. It might be caused by, quote, jingoistic sentiments that target speakers who do not use the dominant language, unquote. Another manifestation might be Mr. Trump's use of the phrase Chinese virus when talking about COVID-19. Dr. DaCosta claims that there are two ways to commit acts of linguistic racism, overt and covert. Overt linguistic racism happens when someone uses language to ridicule someone who speaks English with an accent. Using mock accents to discredit another falls under this category. Another possibility would be to use an exaggerated form of Irish, Italian, or Polish accents to tell a joke about these groups. As the name implies, covert linguistic racism is less blatant. Dr. DaCosta gives the example of saying, quote, Could you please repeat what you said? I don't understand your thick accent. Unquote. Another such occasion arises when, quote, someone openly says only English is to be spoken in the workplace, despite the fact that co-workers might be multilingual, unquote. These examples of so-called covert racism fly in the face of common sense. The purpose of language is to communicate the truth to another person. If a heavy accent prevents this communication from happening, someone can ask that the other repeat. If this communication involves something serious, like the dialogue of a surgical team, then this request becomes an urgent duty. There is nothing racist about clarifying something where lives are at risk. Likewise, a workplace's English-only rule is entirely appropriate if the only language spoken by all employees is English. The proper functioning of a harmonious, safe, and efficient workplace demands a common language. There's nothing wrong with accents. They add to the appeal and variety of a language. Accents reflect the culture of a place and are a positive development. For many Americans, a slight southern accent indicates a note of hospitality. The New England accent common in Harvard Yard expresses erudition. 
marketers used to pay a premium for people with British accents. Accents communicate a wealth of information about people. The way individuals speak indicates their social class, place of birth, background, or level of education. Woke scholars see such accents as discriminating and desire an egalitarian society dominated by the lowest possible denominator. The absurdity of linguistic racism is that it hinders those making an effort to learn languages. No one can correct the speaker, lest one offend. Linguistic racism only makes the problem worse by preventing people from learning to communicate more effectively. Unfortunately, Dr. DaCosta's reach is not limited to Michigan State University students and the academic press. He is also the co-editor of TESOL Quarterly. TESOL is an acronym for Teachers of English to Speakers of Other Languages. The TESOL International Association, which publishes the journal, is very influential. Its tentacles reach many elementary and high schools, especially in cities with large numbers of immigrant students. In many places, a permanent position teaching such students requires TESOL certification. These children need to learn English quickly and thoroughly to prosper in their adopted country. They do not need to pick up ideas that only lead them to present their future neighbors and employers. The effects of trendy ideas like linguistic racism are predictable. Like all woke ideologies, it awakens resentment and distrust. It penalizes those who are supposed to benefit from the ideologies. If Professor DaCosta and his associates desire harmony and peace among different groups, they should look to the church. They would then find a view of humanity informed by the love of God for all. This Catholic sense is the easiest, surest, and quickest path to harmonious relationships among the various races and ethnicities. In contrast, the woke philosophies, motivated as they are by Marxist ideas of oppressor and oppressed, spew only hatred and division. For decades, the educational radical's favorite tool was debasing the mechanics and emotions concerned to human reproduction. They recognized long ago that traditional parents' first goal is to protect their children's innocence by protecting them from these topics. The radicals then swoop in as early as kindergarten, knowing that the students are blank slates in this area. This gives the radicals an opportunity to destroy virtue before it has a chance to bloom. However, parents can defeat these purveyors of indecency. Mr. Benson examines one such case in our final essay for this episode, Chastity Student Blast, Sex Ed Zealots. Christian students on the front lines in the culture war over chastity can take heart in the experience of Markale McBride. Miss McBride is a student at the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy, IMSA. It is a state-run boarding school that draws students from all over Illinois. Like most schools, IMSA pays lip service to the idea of diversity and inclusion. The statement of its chief equity officer 
is right out of the critical race theory playbook. Quote, creating an equity-focused culture that solicits and values the talents and contributions of all people and that celebrates diversity across identity and circumstances requires that we examine ourselves through an equity lens that seeks to expose and eliminate both the known and hidden in plain sight structural inequities that persist in all institutions, including ours. It is not lofty platitudes on a wall. It is action, because action is the only thing that will lead to meaningful change and a lasting impact. Unquote. As many such students discover, Miss McBride found that schools do not celebrate diversity with those who espouse traditional values. The school's policies do not include those who wish to protect their virtue. IMSA shares a radical sex education agenda with many American schools, both private and public. At the core of this agenda is the deliberate desensitization of young people in matters of physical intimacy. IMSA's Student Gender and Sexuality program requires students to stay engaged, to experience discomfort, and become an ally of the oppressed. Perhaps the administrators of this state-run school should consider Illinois state statutes. Chapter 105, Section 9.1.C.2 states, quote, Course material and instruction shall teach honor and respect for monogamous heterosexual marriage. Unquote. The timeline of the conflict between IMSA and Miss McBride is simple. According to the letter sent by the McBride's lawyer to the school, quote, In November, the McBrides communicated in writing to IMSA leadership that Markeo could not participate in the student gender and sexuality program because the program forces Mark Hale to participate in activities and discussions regarding human sexuality that require, pressure, or coerce her to violate her religious principles, unquote. Such a written request should have ended the forced participation of Mark Hale in the program. Another part of Chapter 105, Section 9.1, spells out her rights succinctly. Quote, no pupil shall be required to take or participate in any class or course in comprehensive sex education if his parent or guardian submits written objection thereto. And refusal to take or participate in such course or program shall not be a reason for suspension or expulsion of such pupil. Unquote. Unfortunately. IMSA followed the all-too-common practice of placing its judgment over parents or state legislators. On January 27th, school officials sent Ms. McBride an email saying that Markale needed to complete the course by January 30th, 2021 at 4 p.m. or face disciplinary action. She did not comply. On February 1st, the Associate Director of Student Affairs, Dana Jeanette, informed Ms. McBride that she would face a formal disciplinary hearing. The McBrides reached out to First Liberty Institute, a law firm specializing in religious liberty cases. On February the 2nd, 
2021, the IMSA president, Dr. Jose M. Torres, received a letter from First Liberty that spelled out the laws mentioned above. Suddenly, the vexing problem that troubled the McBrides since November was solved. On February 5th, CBN reported that, quote, the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy has reversed its position and approved Senior Markeo McBride's request for a religious accommodation, unquote. The lesson to concerned parents is clear. Students need not sit passively while leftists attempt to assault their beliefs. Many states have passed laws that resemble the Illinois statute and can thus be applied when faced with imposed programs. Additionally, in 1993, the National Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It, quote, prohibits any agency, department, or official of the United States or any state from substantially burdening a person's exercise of religion, even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability, except that the government may burden a person's exercise of religion only if it demonstrates that the application of the burden to the person, one, furthers a compelling governmental interest, and two, is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling government interest. The law sponsor was current Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer, whose liberal record is one of longstanding. The federal law is not as specific as the Illinois statute. It, however, is the law it would take a more than normally brave school administrator to involve the school in a case involving federal law. Markeo McBride's victory should cheer all those who insist that schools respect their children's rights to remain innocent. Parents facing similar situations should echo John Paul Jones's words, I have not yet begun to fight. This concludes Resisting the Woke Ideologies that Threaten Our Church and Our Culture. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you subscribe to it and give us a five-star rating with the servers through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions with high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out our motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website www.returntoorder.org or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP. Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.